Well, there are some things that are impossible to pull off on your own. And the Christian life is one of those things. It is impossible to remain faithful to God by yourself. It is impossible to remain faithful to God all by yourself. You have got to have other people who will fight for you. And you have got to be fighting for other people. If we don't fight for each other, we will not make it in the Christian life. This is what we're going to see in our passage today. Let's open up to Joshua, the Old Testament book of Joshua, starting in chapter 20 today. Uh, We are in Joshua today because that's where we are in our church-wide Bible reading plan called Bible Savvy. One of the things that we're big on here at Christ Community Church uh, is getting into God's word. Uh, Both Moses and Jesus said that people do not live by bread alone, but we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we found that to be true. This is a life-giving book. It is a source of spiritual nourishment, uh, practical wisdom. And the more time we spend in this story, the more we realize this is the true story of the world. And it's the true story of our lives. And so that's the reason we put together this church-wide reading plan that works through the entire Bible over the course of four years. Uh, We're about a year into it, and over 2,000 people uh, are following along on the reading plan uh, on their own, with their families, and in community groups. It's been really cool. Uh, It's been great to read Scripture together, uh, but we're pretty honest about this. It isn't always easy. Uh, This is an ancient text. It's from a different culture, uh, and so there are some things that can be really challenging about it, and a lot of us have never been taught how to read this book. And so we'd like to help with that. Uh, which is the reason why uh, a few times a year we just jump right into the reading schedule during our weekend teaching and we cover the things that we have been reading that week. Uh, And we especially like to do that with some of the challenging passages. Uh, So this past week, we have been reading uh, Joshua 20 through 22. And so we're going to look at that today. Uh, What I'm going to do is I'm going to do kind of a, a big picture overview of chapter 20 and 21, and then we'll dive a little bit deeper into 22. Let me give you some context for these passages. Uh, The book of Joshua opens with the death of Moses. Uh, Moses was the first and one of the greatest leaders the people of Israel ever had. Uh, He led them out of slavery in Egypt, and he uh, took the long and winding road to lead them eventually to the promised land, the land that God had promised to the uh, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when Moses died right there on the edge of the land, he handed over leadership to a guy named Joshua. Uh, And Joshua's job was to lead this ragtag group of former slaves to go into battle against the military powerhouses that lived in the land. And against all odds, they actually beat them. Uh, God kept his promise and gave the people the land. So the second half of the book of Joshua is actually after all of those battles have happened, it's the people dividing up the lands and allotting different sections of it to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, this is a pretty tedious section of scripture. It's, it's really difficult. Uh, it's hard to get through, but here's one of the thoughts that helps me with this. I imagine as I'm reading this, a kid who has just gotten back from trick-or-treating. Okay, this is what I would do coming back from Halloween. I would take my pillowcase full of candy and I'd empty it out on the floor of my room. And I would start to count my candy. You know? And I'd actually write down how much of each kind I had. Uh, I did that kind of because I'm that sort of person. I just like documentation on things. Uh, but also, I got a big family, so I need to find out if, you know, if I got five Snickers bars and there's only four when I get there, I'm going to go hunt down which of my sisters took that Snickers bar. And so I would count, you know, you know how many M&Ms, how many Reese's Cups, how many. I'd just go through the whole thing and I'd write it down. Now, if you looked in on a kid doing that, you'd think, this is not all that exciting. But for that kid, this is the greatest night of the year. You know, you see all that you've been given. That's what Israel is doing here. 
uh, Israel is dividing up this land. It was, this is a group of homeless wanderers who now have a homeland. This is the land that's going to provide abundant food for them and for their children for generations to come. It's a place where they're going to experience safety rather than being enslaved to the bigger, badder empires around them. It's the land where God has promised that he will meet with his people. He will live with them in the tabernacle and in the temple. It's incredible. It's an amazing gift. So when we get to Joshua 20 and 21, it's kind of the end of this section where they're apportioning the land, and they're actually putting into practice a couple of the rules that God had given them about this. They're setting aside special cities for important purposes. Yeah, you can actually see this. If you just look at the headings over chapter 20 and 21, chapter 20 says this, cities of refuge. Let, let me explain how these work. To understand it, you've got to understand how law enforcement worked in the ancient world. In ancient Near Eastern societies, they did not have a centralized police force. That's a pretty modern invention, only been around a few hundred years. In the ancient world, laws were enforced through the family system. So the clan was responsible for enforcing the rules. That meant that if someone broke a law, the, the people who were the judge and the jury were the elders of the clan. They were your dad and your, your uncles and, and male relatives. And so you can understand how that might be a, a workable system, but it could also lead to some problems, couldn't it? For instance, let's imagine someone was killed. Now, the person who killed that person, are they going to get a fair trial if they stand in front of the, the dead person's father and uncles and they're, they're the ones who are going to make a decision about their life? Are they going to give them you know, a clear-headed, objective read on the situation? Probably not. A lot of times, families would just put a hit out on somebody and not even give them a trial. And that's what cities of refuge were for. Uh, it says in verse 9, any of the Israelites or any foreigner residing among them who killed someone accidentally could flee to these designated cities and not be killed by the avenger of blood prior to standing trial before the assembly. How's that for a title? Avenger of blood. Oh, what do you do? I'm an avenger of blood. Ah, it's good work, right? Well, the benefits are great, but the job's a killer. <laughs> Cities of refugees. <laughs> um, they were safe places for people who've been accused to go hide uh, for protection until they get a trial. And it, it had two purposes. One was to make sure they got a fair trial. Uh, and the second was to stop this cycle of revenge killing. Now, people couldn't go all, all Inigo Montoya on someone. You know, you killed my father, prepare to die. And, and that sort of battle, you kill my father, I kill your brother, and so on, goes back and forth. It took justice out of private hands and put it into the public sphere. Now, of course, once the trial happened, if the person was found guilty, they were handed over for punishment. But this was not a way for people to evade justice. It was uh, so that the process of justice had enough time uh, to actually be fair. Uh, the other kind of city that was set aside in uh, chapter 21, it says, towns for the Levites. Towns for the Levites. Uh, I got to explain uh, the tribe of Levi here because it was a special tribe among the 12 tribes of Israel. They had been set apart for a special purpose of leading the people of Israel in worship. Uh, some of the Levites were designated as priests to go into the presence of God to offer sacrifices. Uh, others were set aside to uh, do the upkeep of the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, others were musicians that led in public worship. Uh, some had roles in the community to teach people the word of God. And because of their special role, uh, it was a service to the entire nation, not just uh, one portion. They were not given uh, a specific territory to live in. Instead, they were given cities that were scattered throughout the entire country. That way, everybody could be close to a Levite. And God actually commanded the people of Israel, every family, to give 10% of their income each year to support the ministry of the Levites. 
The idea was there are some things that are so important uh, for the sake of the whole community, uh, but they don't actually generate income that everybody needs to chip in to support this. And God said, uh, the spiritual life of the community is that important to me. Now, here is where this gets awkward for me. Uh, We don't have any Levites anymore, do we? No. Uh, We don't have priests who offer sacrifice anymore, do we? No. But uh, there are some people who are designated still to serve the spiritual needs of the community. Who are those people? They're pastors. And so I'm standing up here today to ask you for a raise. (laughs) Kidding. Uh, We have a very generous church. I am paid very well for a pastor, and you will never hear me complain about that. But it is worth asking the question, why is it important to support a local church? And I'm specifically talking about the local church, not just good causes in general, because a lot of people, they they look at the local church and they say, you know, I I see that that might be a good thing, but it's not that exciting. I'd much rather give to an organization that's doing something I I really care about, like, uh, you know, caring for refugees or digging wells or fighting poverty. But when you see the principle here behind the cities for the Levites, uh, you realize God is doing something important. He scattered them across the country so that they would be anchors for the spiritual life in their local community. And that's what local churches are meant to be. Uh, Think about it like this. What would happen if everybody started giving only to good, worthy Christian organizations who are doing great work, but they never gave to a local church? Here's what I think would happen. Every single one of those good organizations would collapse in the next 10 to 15 years. And here's why I say that. Because where do people learn to care about all of those causes? Where are people's hearts formed so that they're, they're generous in all of those ways? Where do they pick up God's heart for the needs of others and for the world? It happens within the local church. And you can prove that statistically. Uh, people who attend church more than once a month are twice as generous even outside the church than people who don't. Uh, Not only that, but think about what would happen if churches were not funded and they shut their doors. Uh, Before long, uh, people with great ideas would say, you know what? I got an idea. We really need an organization in our community that is serving the needs of the local community. Wouldn't it be great if we had an organization that made sure everybody heard the good news about Jesus in our area? Or what if we had an organization that got really invested in people's lives and taught them how to have strong relationships and healthy families uh, and help them get free from their addictions and get their finances in order? And what if we had an organization that, that really walked with people through tough times, you know, when they're sick or they've lost a loved one? Or if there's a, a group that, you know, built community for, for lonely people or, or mobilized people to serve the needs of, uh, of the poor in their local area, wouldn't that be great? And how about this? It would be so much more effective if we actually raised funds to have staff, full-time staff, professionals in all those areas who could help organize all this work. And you know what? We should make sure one of those organizations ends up in every town, every neighborhood, across the country, and across the world. Wouldn't that change everything? It's a great idea, isn't it? Which is why God thought of it. And it's the reason why in the New Testament, even when there are no Levites and no priests to support, God says that the first organization that a Christian should should support is their local church because the local church is the anchor of the gospel within a community and the hope of the world. Okay, those are the special cities. We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at chapter 22. Uh, Last week, Pastor Jim taught us a really important principle. God gives us victory, but we've got to fight for it. It's a great truth. God offers us freedom from sin, but that doesn't mean we can just sort of sit back and sort of wait for it to happen. 
We've got to put in the effort to fight temptation. We've got to put in the work to grow to become like Jesus. But in addition to what Pastor Jim taught, I want to add to that principle. Because it's not just that we have to fight for our own victories. We also need to fight for the victories of others. And so what this chapter is going to ask us is, who will you fight for? It's going to focus on two different groups. Here's the first one. It asks us, will you fight for your brothers and sisters? Will you fight for your brothers and sisters? A little backstory for this chapter. Uh, as the people of Israel are headed to the promised land, they have to travel through the territory belonging to a lot of different countries. And, and along the way, uh, as they're passing through, uh, some of those nations attack Israel. Uh, Israel defends themselves and fights back, and they actually win the battles. And in the process, they actually pick up some of the territory uh, that belonged to the people of those nations outside of the designated promised land, uh, east of the Jordan River. Now, a few of the tribes of Israel, they look at that land, they say, this is really good land. Uh, we'd love to settle here. So they go to Moses, uh, and these three tribes, Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, they say, hey, could we, could we actually live here? Can we just stay here? This is great. And Moses said, okay, I'll let you do that, but here's the hitch. If we go into the promised land and we don't have all of you with us, we're going to be down three whole tribes of fighting men. And we're going up against a big enemy, so we need you on board. So if you settle here, what you, you've got to do is send your army across to come fight with us. Uh, and when we've achieved victory, then you can come back and settle with your families. So that's their assignment. Let's see how they did. Let's start reading in verse 1. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, you have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your fellow Israelites, but you have carried out the mission of the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest, as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Notice what Joshua emphasizes here. He emphasizes that they had done all that Moses commanded. They obeyed Joshua in everything he commanded, that they carried out the whole mission that God had given them. They, they did it all. They, they, they completed every objective given. They obeyed every command. And they lived by a key principle in the Bible. That's this. No one arrives until all of us arrive. They didn't say, you know what, our needs are being met right now, so I don't have to worry about the needs of anybody else. They didn't say, oh, we've got our victory on this side, so we don't have to worry about your victory. We don't have to fight for you. They said, no, we don't just fight for ourselves. We fight for our brothers and sisters. And it was really great of them to do this, but the question now hangs over them. Now that that is done, what are they going to do when they go back to the other side of the Jordan? Are they going to be just as obedient as they were before? And so Joshua urges them, be very careful to keep the commandment. Walk in obedience to God, keep his commandments, and so on. Because Joshua knows, he understands the human heart. He, he knows that just because you're faithful in one season doesn't mean that's a guarantee you're going to be faithful forever. You've got to fight for it. Uh, some of you students here, uh, you this summer went to camp for a week, and it was fantastic. It, you worshiped God. You grew in community. You, you, you developed in your relationship with him. And, and you just felt so passionate during that week at SBR. But now you're back. It's a month into school. And the question is, how are you doing now? Uh, others of you, uh, over this past year, you spent a season of time working really hard to fight an addiction. 
And you experienced a tremendous amount of freedom as you did that. But here's the question, as you move forward, what is gonna keep you sober for years and decades to come? How are you gonna fight? Some of you went on go teams this year. And when you were off working with our partners, you just felt like God was so close and you could see him working and you were so excited to be engaged in what he's doing. But here's the question. How's that translated into your life back home? Joshua knows that the Eastern tribes have been faithful during the battle, during the hard assignment, but now they're gonna go back to ordinary life and it's not gonna seem quite as urgent. So let's see how they do. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. When the eastern tribes came to Gileath near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. Now, this is interesting. Uh, right before they cross the, the Jordan River to go to the other side, they stop and they build this big, huge, impossible-to-ignore altar uh, right there on the border. Uh, now, what do you do on an altar? You offer sacrifices there. You, you give offerings to God that say to God, thank you for all that you've done. Or they might say, I'm sorry for the things that I've done. Or, or I love you and I'm committed to you. That's what an altar is for. And so it sounds like that'd be a pretty good thing. Like that's something you want to do for God, right? But look at how the other Israelites react. Verse 11. When the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Gileath near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. What in the world? Like, why would you react that strongly for something that seems so good? It's because God specifically commanded the people of Israel, you will build one and only one altar in Israel. And why would God give a command like that? It doesn't make much sense, does it? You know, God's the God of everywhere, so why couldn't you just kind of worship him all over the place? Wouldn't that be even better? Well, God gave the command because he wanted Israel to be faithful to one God and faithful to one people. You've got to remember that Israel lived in a culture of polytheism. Lots and lots of gods were believed in. And so if you want to worship those gods, you'd have to go to the place where the god was in charge. So you'd set up a shrine for the goddess of these woods, or you'd go over here and you'd build a, a, a temple to the, the god of these hills or these mountains, and you'd have all of these shrines all over the place for different deities. And God knew, even though they believed in one god at first, that if he let them build all of these different altars to him, Pretty soon, they would start to think just like the culture around them. Like, maybe there's a different God worshipped over here and a different God worshipped over there, and it's all just a bunch of different gods. And he also knew that if they set up shrines in the same places where the pagan uh, Canaanites uh, worshipped their gods, they would start to worship in the same way the Canaanites did, drawing in sexual practices into their worship and child sacrifice and all sorts of things that God said, I never want that to be a part of worship. And so God said, one altar so that you stay faithful to the one God. He also did it so they would be faithful to one people. Uh, the tribes of Israel, they all came from the same place, the same uh, ancestors, but that doesn't mean they were unified. They, they fought and they quarreled all the time throughout their history. And so God knew if each one of them had their own altar, their own temple, they, they would start to fracture, they'd break up, they wouldn't be one people. So he said, build one central one so everybody comes together multiple times a year and works together as one people. Kept them faithful as one people. So he makes the command really clear, which is why it is very surprising to see these eastern tribes who have been so obedient break a clear command of God as the first thing they do when they go home. So it sends the other tribes into a panic mode. 
Because they, they understand what's going on. They know where disobedience leads. It leads to consequences for the entire community. They knew that, that unfaithfulness has a tendency to spread. You, know, you see one person kind of bending the rules for themselves, pretty soon other people are doing it. One person starts to walk away from God, other people follow them. And the Israelites were warned. God warned them. He said, if you start to behave like the Canaanites and you wander from me to other gods, well, I'm going to treat you like the Canaanites and I'm going to drive you out of the land just like I did to them. So they knew we got to confront sin before it gets too far. Now, you and I, we, we tend to think of sin as kind of an individual thing. It's a private matter. It's between you and God. You know, who am I to tell you what to do? And you don't butt into my life. But sin is not a private matter. It has ripple effects. Think about it like this. Uh, if you regularly lose your temper at your kids at home, is it just a thing that happens behind closed doors? No. It, it shapes their hearts. It, it shapes uh, how they respond to other authority figures. It, it shapes how they express their, their anger and frustration to other people in their life, and it starts to affect their relationships. It, it subconsciously is a factor in how they make decisions as they grow up and what they do throughout their life. Think about this. Uh, let's say you look at uh, uh, pornography on your phone all by yourself. It's just you. No, no one else is involved. Is that just a private matter? No. Because uh, those uh, lustful thoughts, they leak into other parts of your life, and they shape how you interact with real-life people. Uh, they uh, contribute to living a double life. You're hiding things from people. And before long, that erodes trust in your relationships and affects other areas. Uh, by looking at porn, you, you feed into the porn industry. And that influences uh, entertainment and advertising. And our world gets filled with unrealistic sexual images. And that has the ripple effect uh, of affecting the body image of uh, men and women throughout society. And on and on the trouble goes. Your private sin contributes to public problems. Your sin affects everybody around you. The, the Western tribes, they, they look at the Eastern tribes and they, they see them disobeying. And they take it seriously. And so they send a group of leaders to confront them. Look at what it says in verse 16. This is what they say to these tribes. The whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? It was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? So they, we've seen this in the past, how this affects everybody. The Bible tells us again and again that within the family of God, we're responsible for each other. We've, our job as followers of Jesus is to hold each other accountable. I, I know that to a lot of people, that sounds really rough. It sounds judgy. It sounds harsh. But I got to tell you, it's one of the most loving things you can do for somebody. In our Bible-savvy reading schedule, uh, we're not just reading the book of Joshua. We're also reading the book of James kind of every other day. Uh, and so on Thursday, we read uh, Joshua 22. And on Friday, we read James 5. And there was a really cool connection between these two chapters. Let me read you this verse. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Isn't that a cool coincidence when things come up in one reading and then the next? Whenever that happens, I think the guy who put this together must have been a genius. <laughs> but did you catch what James said? 
He said, if you turn someone away from their sin, you save them from, you know, a minor mistake they might regret later. You save them from a little guilt in the future. You save them from, you know, a meaningless violation. No, you save them from death, from death. Because that's what sin is, isn't it? You're taking a step away from the giver of life and you're taking a step towards death. Sin kills. It's not a minor thing. And so when you see a friend who's going down a path and you say, man, this is not good, of course you're going to be troubled by that. What would it say about us if we just sort of looked at someone doing that and just shrugged? As we watched them sip the cup of poison. We got to say something. Now, don't misunderstand this. This does not mean that it's our job to start going around pointing fingers at everybody, including people who aren't even followers of Jesus. Actually, that's the exact opposite of what the Bible commands. Paul himself says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? It's not our job to judge people who haven't surrendered to Jesus. But within the church, we are supposed to fight for each other. We're supposed to warn each other when we're flirting with danger. We're supposed to do this, of course, in a gentle and humble way. Because here's the thing. Look, I, I know how much I struggle with temptation. So when I talk with you about that, I'm not going to be harsh. I know that this is a battle for both of us. And I also know that, you know what, the next time it might be you confronting me. And, and I want to treat you the same way I hope you treat me in that situation. We're going to be gentle with each other. Uh, we're also told in Scripture that we need to do this in a way that leads to the least amount of public shame, public embarrassment. Matthew 18, when Jesus kind of elaborates on this, he says, you know, if someone sins, go to that person one-on-one. Don't talk with other people about it. Just go directly to that person. And if they repent, you guys are the only people who have to know about it. You can just stay right there. If it does escalate, he says, you know, you bring in a couple more people. But the point is to keep it to the smallest circle of people that has to know because we're not trying to shame people over sin. We're trying to warn people about sin. But here's what we can't do. We can't just ignore sin. The Bible is clear. If we don't have people who will call us out, we are not likely to win the battle against sin. So here's a question. Do you need to have some hard conversations? Someone you're close to that you see something going on in their life and you gotta say, hey man, can we talk about this? Now I'm not talking about strangers or acquaintances. I'm talking about someone that you've got an investment in that, that you can speak into their life. Or the flip side, do you have people who could do that for you? Like, do you have people that you've already given permission to say, hey, you can say the hard things to me. You can ask the hard questions for me. And if you don't have that person, who could you invite to do that? This week, go and talk to someone and say, hey, can you be there for me? Can you fight for me? Because I want victory. Will we fight for our brothers and sisters? Here's a second question the chapter asks us. Will you fight for the next generation? Will you fight for the next generation? Uh, The Western tribes, they send this uh, group of leaders to the Eastern tribes to say, hey, what are you guys doing? Which was a really great thing because it gave the Eastern tribes a chance to tell their story, to to actually clarify things. Because sometimes uh, when you see someone doing something and you ask them about it, you realize, oh, wait, I misunderstood. It wasn't what I thought. That's the case in this situation. So let's read in verse 21 how these Eastern tribes respond. Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, The Mighty One, God, the Lord, the Mighty One, God, the Lord, He knows. And let Israel know, if this had been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord Himself call us to account." 
No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to our descendants, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord's made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord. And so your descendants might cause our descendants to stop fearing the Lord. And that's why we said, let's get ready and build an altar, not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants won't be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And as And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we'll answer, hey, look at the replica of the Lord's altar that our ancestors built, not for burnt offerings or sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas the priest and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. These eastern tribes, they're they're afraid about the future. They they, they look at what's going on and they realize, you know what? There may come a day, generations down, when our two sides, the east and the west, kind of divide culturally and they're going to look at each other and they're not going to see each other as one people. And and that means that our our kids are going to have a harder time worshiping God the way he said. And and so they say, we got to make sure this doesn't happen. And you can hear the desperation in their words. This is a, a huge concern for them. And so that's what they do. They, they build this altar not to be used, but to be this big, glaring, obvious reminder, we belong to the Lord. We belong to God. And our children belong to God. And, and we belong to God's people. And our children belong to God's people. This is something we've got to remember. They're doing something really, really important. Something that we need to do too. They're asking the question, what are the most likely factors that are going to lead the next generation to abandon God? The statistics say that 50% of kids and teenagers who currently go to church will walk away from the faith after they graduate from high school. 50%. Now, some of those will come back to the faith, but most people who come back after that, it takes them a decade before they do that. And in the meantime, they make all sorts of life decisions and have all sorts of experiences, but they're doing it outside of the community of faith, outside of a walk with God. And many of those kids won't come back to Jesus at all. So this is a really big deal. We have to fight for the next generation. How do we do that? Uh, Let me give you just three suggestions, okay? If you're taking notes, I'm sorry I didn't get this on the slides, but you can still write these down. We fight for the next generation by what we insist on by what we insist on. This is primarily for parents with kids who are at home. Because one of the most powerful things you can do to shape the hearts of your children is by what you make sure always happens in your home. I mean, think about it. As an adult, you, you know, you can say, you know what, this always happened in my home. Or my parents never did this. Whether it's family dinners or public displays of affection or talking about money or having guests over or apologizing to each other. The things you say, we always did this, we never did this. And those are the things that shape your values and your instincts deeper than almost anything else. So here's the question, what do you actually insist on happening in your home? Do you pray together as a family? Do you read the Bible with your kids? Do you serve as a family? Now, I know that there are lots of parents who think, yeah, I'd love to do some of those things, but it's kind of weird, right? Like, I don't know how to do those things. My parents didn't do them with me, so how do I do that? 
that we realize how daunting this can be. We've actually put together a resource for you. Our, our folks in Kids World put together what's called the Parent Pathway. It's online and it's full of great ideas and great recommendations for parents with kids at any age of what you can do in your home uh, to nurture faith in your kids. It's also the reason, uh, as a church, why we put together the Epic Journal for kids. Uh, we, we thought, you know what? Reading the Bible is not just for teenagers or for adults. It's also for the kids. It's, it's God's word to them. Uh, my oldest is in first grade. And so first grade is when Epic starts. And so this week was the first week uh, I sat down to use the Epic Journal with one of my kids. And the first day went pretty good. We were in the book of James and she understood something in it. And I thought, all right, we're going to do this. And then the second day, we read a list of cities. And I thought... What idiot put this plan together? <laughs> what I realized is the section we were reading was really long. She's a first grader. So the next day, I, I decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to look ahead, and I'm going to just pick a paragraph, a few verses that I think she can digest, and we're going to look at that together. And you know what? That actually really, really helped. Uh, that might be some of your story. You might be thinking, man, these are long readings. It's, you know, it's one thing for an adult or a teenager, but for a little kid, this is hard. Reading something small is better than reading nothing at all. That whatever you do, insist that scripture has a part in your home life. For most parents in our community, there are some things that we find really easy to insist on. Uh, things like schoolwork and extracurriculars. And, and we do that because we know, you know, we want to set our kids up to be successful in life. We want them to be well-rounded. And so we're never shy to say, no, you got to do your homework. Or you got to go to practice. Or you got to show up for the game or the recital or whatever. We know that these are important, but then when it turns to things of faith, we, we kind of, you know, get gun shy and we feel hesitant. There are a lot of parents who will actually do this when their kids are little, but not when they're older. They'll say, hey, as, as kids, we're going to bring you to church, make sure you come along, but you get to junior high or high school, you know, we're not going to force it on you. It's interesting because you think about what message that sends. It sends the message, you know, things like schoolwork and extracurriculars, those are essentials. You've got to do those, but things that have to do with God, those are optional. That's actually one of the reasons a lot of people walk away from faith, because that's how their family treated it, a secondary part of their life that could be dropped if you didn't want it. It's interesting. Studies of today's teenagers have demonstrated that they are the most stressed out generation of teenagers in American history. Uh, listen to this quote. A recent study showed that 13 to 17-year-olds are more likely to feel extreme stress than adults. Teenagers are more stressed out than adults. Even more alarming is that the adults closest to young people are often blind to their heightened stress levels. Uh, approximately 20% of our teenagers confess that they worry a great deal about current and future life events. But only 8% of the parents of these same teenagers report that their child is experiencing a great deal of stress. And when you talk to the teenagers, you say, the, the reason the stress is, is because there's so much crammed into my schedule. There's so much pressure to perform in these different areas from the adults in my life. What was interesting, though, is that uh, the researchers did find one activity that reduced the overall stress of teenagers, meaningful involvement in a church community. The, the first way you can fight for the next generation is by what you insist on. Here's the second way. You fight for the next generation by what you ask them about, what you ask them about. Uh, this is one for anybody who interacts with kids or teenagers, whether they're your own kids, your friend's kids, your little brothers and sisters, whoever. When you talk with someone younger than you, what do you ask them about? Because what you ask them about communicates what you care about. I know that for me, the easiest topics with kids are usually, you know, school or friends or their activities. 
But lately, I've been trying to work in questions about spiritual things, not just with my kids, but with other kids that I know. So for the little ones, I'll ask them, hey, did you go to church this week? Why don't you tell me the story you heard? Or, or I'll say, you know, hey, what's a question that you wonder about God? Or I'll say, what, what's something happy that happened this week that, that you're really thankful for, you want to thank God for? For older kids, I might say something like, hey, tell me something cool that God's been doing in your life lately. Or I'll ask them, what, what can I pray for you about? Or, or I might actually ask them about hard things. What's, what's been difficult that's actually made it hard to trust God these days? But actually, on that Parent Pathway Guide, uh, we have a whole list of questions that you can use to spark spiritual conversations uh, for kids of any age. You should check them out, even if you're not a parent. Because here's the thing. This is why it's important, even for those of us, to invest in other kids that aren't ours. Uh, because when they research what actually causes a young person to keep their faith, uh, the number one factor, other than whether or not their parents believe, is how many other adults they know that they can talk to about their faith. Say the golden number is five adults. If, if a student has five adults they can talk to about spiritual things other than their parents, they're far more likely to keep their faith after they graduate. That means that all of us have to be intentional about the relationships we have with people younger than us. And if you are a grandparent, that especially means you. Because uh, kids need to know that they're inheriting a legacy of faith. They, they need to hear from you the stories of what God's done in your life. They need you to ask them questions about what they think about God. Not lecture them about God, but talk to them about the good things you've seen God do. We've got to fight for the next generation through what we ask them. Here's the last way to fight for the next generation. We fight by how we pray. How we pray. Do you pray for your kids? Do you pray for your grandkids? Do you pray for your little brothers and sisters? Do you pray for uh, the, your friends' kids and your, your kids' friends? Do you, you pray for the kids that are in our church? Do you pray for them? Here's the thing. Right now, at all four of our campuses, there are hundreds of kids in Kids World. And if you walked down to Kids World and you peeked in one of those rooms, you know what you'd see? You'd see kids acting squirrely, running around, getting corralled. You'd see them making a craft. You'd see them singing a song. And, and you might be fooled into thinking that all that's going on is stories and games just keeping them occupied while the adults do the real stuff. But that is not what you are seeing. What you are seeing is a battlefield, a battlefield. I use the word fight here for a reason. We are at war. We have an enemy who hates God and hates us and hates our kids, and he is fighting with all of his might to keep us from loving God. The stakes are as high as they can possibly be. The enemy hates that right now those kids are hearing about the God who loves them and the God who is powerful and the God who is good and the God who sent Jesus to save them because he is terrified of what might happen if that sticks, if it sinks into their hearts, how that will change their lives and change society. He's doing everything he can to keep that from happening. But here's our secret weapon, prayer prayer. Nothing is more powerful than prayer. We have to call on God to win our kids' hearts, to hold them fast, to protect them against the evil one. Are you praying for kids? Even if this week you just thought of one kid you know, and you said, this week I'm going to pray earnestly for that kid. Will you beg and plead and cry out for them? Will you fight for the next generation? Let's do that now. Let's pray. God, we do want to call out on behalf of our little brothers and sisters, these kids that you love so much, our students in our community. God, we, we pray that you would grab their hearts and you would root them in your love. 
God, we pray that you would give them strength by your power, that you would give them a delight in your word and a love for your world, that we pray that they would become loyal to your people, that they would own your mission, that they would savor your grace in the deep parts of their heart. God, we pray that every single young person in our church would have people around them fighting for them. God, God, I pray that for every single one of us. God, surround us with people who will fight for us and make us people who will fight for others. We, we want the victory that you give. So God, as we sing this next song, we, we pray that you would remind us of your power to fight on our behalf. We pray that you would receive these gifts and these offerings as an act of worship to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.